Acts 5, 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Amen. Um, a number of people have been talking about maybe the aircon hasn't been working as good today. And I do want to apologize. That's for me. This passage is a bit of a fire and brimstone passage, so I wanted you to feel that. I'm kidding. I didn't actually do that. It's not my fault. Um, so a passage, to actually properly understand it and to grasp it, last week you would have heard, well, Revelation 13, but the week before that you would have heard their prayer of boldness that after they faced the persecution of the Pharisees and Peter and John had been thrown in jail, but then miraculously were given escape by an angel and all of the believers found out, they prayed a prayer for boldness. And to understand that, then we also need to read passages 32 to 37 because we see the prayer, that prayer for boldness is answered and then that flows into the story about Ananias and Sapphira. So, from 32 to 37. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we have the church coming out of just being persecuted from those outside, from the world around them and from the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And after facing that persecution and praying out the prayer from the last chapter, their prayer is answered boldly by God. And we have the Holy Spirit coming and saying they're of one soul and one mind. And now that sounds pretty spectacular. Like something we wish we all saw in the church today. One heart and one soul. Oh, sorry. One heart and one mind. As though they were united. They were unified. There wasn't quarreling. There was no anger amongst each other. Everyone loved each other. They saw you come in the door and you were greeted. Happily, no one had any animosity towards each other. And it was just a, a beautiful time to be a part of the church. And we see the Spirit manifested itself in several ways. And we have to remember 
They didn't have unity because they were really great people. They had unity because they had the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit in them, bringing unity to the church. And he answered their prayer. He gave them boldness. They proclaimed the gospel. Even though they'd just been sent to jail for preaching it, the Holy Spirit said, I will give you courage. I will give you boldness. And, he can, and so they continued to speak boldly. And then he also gave them generosity and love towards one another. They were selling all of their, they were selling their property. Could we imagine selling our properties nowadays and giving it to the church fully for the benefit of those who are disadvantaged and who had need? And then another thing he was doing, he was performing miracles through the apostles. It sounds like a church which we don't see nowadays. It seems like an outlier from everything. And it very much is an outlier. And this is a special period of time in church history. It's the beginning of the church. Pentecost has just come. The Holy Spirit descended on the apostles. Everyone's coming to faith for the first time. And they don't even have a whole Bible. (laughs) You coming to help? Um, and so it's just a spectacular time in church history but we're left wondering why can't we have that nowadays and there are churches that really really want to set themselves up to they, they want to aspire to be like the church from Acts 1 to 4 they want to be filled with the spirit performing miracles being a spectacle to the world so that people would come in and be saved that's what all of us obviously want but then it's so interesting because we so very often separate Acts 1 to 4 from Acts 5 because we there's just this just jarring story that comes in the middle and suddenly we're left having to deal with maybe the church wasn't quite as good as we thought it was. And I think it wasn't. I think when we read that passage 32 to 37, we're given a bird's eye view of the church. It looked like everyone was united and the ones who truly believed They truly were united. They truly did give all and generously and cheerfully. And that's amazing because the Holy Spirit was doing that. People don't do that of their own volition. But the Holy Spirit has the power to give the people those desires. But we can't forget in the church there are always people who don't truly believe. And that's where we come down to the next section. And we're introduced to two examples of people who were giving all of their proceeds from the sale of their land to the church to the benefit of those who were in need. And we see one example was Joseph, called Barnabas by the apostles. And not much is said. All he said, he sold his land, took the money, gave it to the church. It's about a sentence long and there's not much about him. But all it's really saying is, He followed the example of all the other believers. He was to be set in contrast to the next people we're about to talk about. Because everyone else, seemingly, who had given to the church were were true believers. They genuinely gave out of their pocket for the benefit of others. But yet then we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. So these two are very much set in contrast to Barnabas, to Joseph. Because the point is that when we're drawn in and to see the generosity of the church, we're meant to see beyond just their generosity to why were they actually doing what they were doing. And Barnabas is given as the good example as what the believers should be doing, but then we get the negative example. So with everyone else out of their hearts, selfless and generous, we get Ananias and Sapphira who wanted to deceive the church. So like we can read one, one to two. But a man named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, 
And with the knowledge of his wife, he kept back some of it, and he brought only a part of it and brought it to the apostles, laid it at their feet for them to use it as they wished to the benefit of other people. But unlike the others, they kept back some. So why did they do, why did they do, why did they, sorry, yeah, why did they do what they did? It's an interesting thing because it seems like, I don't know, did they do it out of greed? Did they do it out of wanting to keep back the money? Well, it's an interesting thing because I think you can imagine that when the people in that early church would have given all that money, naturally as humans, when we see something do some, someone do something, that's an example. That's a good example. We want to praise that person. We want to be, look, you want to hold them up as the example not saying we necessarily should do that, but the church would have done that. They would have admired and esteemed the people who give to the church because look at how they sacrifice. Look at how they are like Christ. They gave all. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted that too. They wanted everyone to see their honorable deed. They wanted to hold it up for everyone to see. But when they had their money, the greed in them couldn't let go of all of it. Okay, but... I think it's fair enough because it was their money to start with. They, no one was telling them you have to let go of your money. It wasn't a command that God said, sell your land and give all of it to the church. Otherwise, sell all of it. No. Um, but what they were doing is rather than cheerfully giving out of their hearts, they wanted to do something sinfully. You see, they had two desires in their hearts. Rather than the generous desire of their heart, Satan put two in their hearts. One, a desire for greed. A desire that when they saw the money that they had, oh, well, like anyone would do, I want to keep back some of this for myself. It's fair enough. It's their money. They could have done it. And you see, the interesting thing is, they could have brought all the money to the church and told the truth and they would have got the praise of the people they would have been esteemed they would have got the privilege or they could have come to the church and said we're, we're going to give part of the money and that wouldn't have been greedy that would have been perfectly fine maybe they were going to use that money to send their kids on a cruise ship i don't think they had cruise ships back then but a nice mediterranean cruise but instead of doing that they lied because they wanted to keep the money but they still wanted that praise they wanted the privilege in the church they wanted people to admire them but yet they didn't want people to think they were greedy by keeping their money even though they did and they chose deception thinking that they could fool God they thought they could lie and cheat their way into riches and fame and well we'll see how that goes for them. you see Think about Ananias as he was walking up to, you know, they have conceived of this idea, this plan. They've sold the land, they've got the money. And so as he walks, he has the money in his hands. He's walking to the church at every moment, every step he takes. He could have repented. He could have turned around and gone back home. Until the moment that he laid it at the apostles' feet, he had every chance not to go that way. But yet... What did he do? He continues, assured in his mind that there is absolutely probably nothing wrong with what he's doing. He probably thinks that he can deceive mere humans easily. 
What do the apost- What can the apostles see that he possibly couldn't? He's taken time to plan this out so that no one knows what's happening. No one would question the amount they sold the land for. No one would think of it. They've devised this deliberately so that people wouldn't question. And you would think that he wouldn't be so foolish as to think he could deceive God. Because surely Ananias was a Jew. Surely he would have known the Old Testament. You know, it says Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Or Job 28.24. For God looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. He would have grown up knowing, knowing these. It was a part of being a Jew as a child growing up. You would memorize scripture because they didn't, they, most a lot of them couldn't read. A lot of them just had to memorize. It was just word mouth to mouth and that, that's how they would learn. And so he likely would have known these very passages and so would his wife. And yet he paid no attention to them. His mind was blinded and he continued to go about thinking that he could deceive God. Well, Unfortunately, he didn't. You see, in the early church, when it first began, it had this purity. It was like a firstborn child. It was perfect, untainted, untouched by the world. When you hold a child for the first time, they seem so innocent and so pure. And yet, you get maybe a couple days in and you start to see the evil within them and the evil of the world coming out of them. There's the wailing. There's just... As kids get older, you see the selfishness that's naturally in them. You don't have to teach them to be selfish. You have to teach them to be selfless. And that's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. Because just as parents try to protect their children from the evils of the world, they want to teach them to grow up to be good people, to sharing is caring, to do good things for people out of the selflessness of their own hearts. That's what the Holy Spirit does as well. He loves us, and he loved that early church, and he loves this church still, and he wants it to remain pure. He doesn't want it to be, un- to be tainted by people who come in and are trying to corrupt the church. But Ananias and Sapphira were trying to do exactly that. They were trying to bring lies and sin into the church, but they thought they could hide it. And see, when the Holy Spirit finds out about it, what he does is he exposes it and he deals with it. So we get to the point up in verse 3 Peter said why have you why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land boom like that just the Holy Spirit does this miraculous revelation to Peter and suddenly his sin is exposed Ananias is exposed for who he is greedy and a hypocrite he's lied and so we're kind of left with what, what's going to happen to Ananias now? What's going to happen to him? Will he be judged by the church and maybe punished? Will they, I don't know, send him to the naughty corner or whip him a few times? I don't know. But, or maybe they'll give him a warning, giving him a chance to repent. But instead, what happens? He drops dead instantly. Now, this is a jarring story. This is not something that should be like, ah, yeah, man, who doesn't have a church like that? That's every Sunday. It's something that when we hear it, it's, okay, he's not judged by the church. He's not, he's not even given a warning. As soon as the words were uttered that his sin was exposed, just like that, he fell to the floor and breathed his last. It's a shocking thing because, of course, if I'm reading it out, and we probably know the story, we're like, yeah, you know, man, you had it coming. It's like, who thinks anyone has that coming? It's 
a spectacular thing to see happen and a ter terrifying thing. And many of us have spent time in the church. We've seen many miraculous things, maybe healings. We've probably seen people, but we've never seen anyone drop dead. I don't know if I've ever heard a story of anyone saying they've seen someone drop dead. But yet, that's what happened. So how do we deal with this? So I want to answer three questions about what we read to help us understand what exactly happened. So the first really interesting question is, were Ananias and Sapphira believers or not? Because that changes completely how we read the passage. Because then it's, if it's to believers, it's something that could happen to us. If it's unbelievers, well then there's a safety in being a believer. And, and it's interesting because our impression at the moment, when you read the chapter before, the church is filled with believers. Everyone is of one heart and one soul. They're all giving. And so there's no impression that there's, there's wolves and sheep's clothing in the mix. There's no idea that this perfect mixture of people is actually tainted with sinners and people who don't truly believe in Jesus. But yet, there is... Because we have to ask the question, would Christians commit a sin like Ananias and Sapphira? Would people really come to the church and lie? Yes, they would. Definitely. We know that people have done worse sins than Ananias and Sapphira, and far worse than them at that. But then, all right, if the person... Because we have to ask, who killed them? It was... It's meant to sound... Because there's no person who's given, it's not like Peter stabbed him or something. It's the Holy Spirit who did it. Like that. Because only the Holy Spirit could have taken his breath away without anyone touching him. And we know the Holy Spirit is God, so if God killed him, we have to ask, can God do that to believers? Can God actually just make us drop dead like that? And I'm not talking about he kills us by normal means, whether through sickness, old age, or just any kind of natural means, but rather through a supernatural, immediate death, taking of the life from the body. Could he do such a thing to a believer? Can he? Yes, I think he can. Would he? I don't think he would. Because we likely know Romans 8 to 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is condemnation? There is no judgment and there is no punishment. There is nothing to be done to believers. Because even for the sins that we commit against, Christ has taken them and they are covered. So there no longer remains a judgment or a punishment for us. So then what's happening to Ananias and Sapphira here? I really, it's an interesting question because if they're believers, to me it just looks like a fast track, fast track ticket to heaven. And if they're believers, I would tell you right now, go and sell all of your stuff, give half of it to the church, go to Jody and tell her that you gave all of it, then hopefully you'll drop dead and you'll go to heaven. You skip the queue. There's no real lesson to be learnt in that because... All you're really doing is just skipping the queue. And so I think when we wonder the question, were Ananias and Sapphira believers or not? I think it's really hard to sit and to say that they were believers. Because then this, I just think all the power from this passage is just completely destroyed. There's nothing in it. It's just, oh, well, God kind of just feels a bit angry towards, or maybe, you know, just wants to drop someone dead or just did it one time just for the fun of it. And there's another thing that Paul also says, not Paul, sorry, Peter says to them, 
It says, why has Satan filled your heart? That phrase is only used one other time in the whole Bible. And that it's used to describe Judas. It's in, where was it? Luke 22 and John 13. It's the Last Supper. And right as he's, Judas is sitting there at the table with Jesus, it says that Satan entered him as he was leaving to go betray Jesus. And so you get this example of someone betraying Jesus. And then later on in John 17, 12, it says, Jesus had not lost any of those who God gave to him except one, Judas. That's not to say that Jesus loses people who are his, but it says that it means that Judas was never a believer to begin with. And so I think we can equate that to Ananias and Sapphira as well, that they were not believers. So definitively, can we say that they weren't believers? No. No one truly knows except we can't know anyone who was in heaven or hell except for Jesus, really. And I guess you could say Enoch and Elijah. But they were carried up, and I don't think any of us are getting carried up to heaven. Um, and so I think we can quite confidently say they were not believers. I'm happy to say that. But I think it's also up to each person to believe what they want to believe on that. And it's not the crux of the issue with this passage. So... Another question I think we have to ask is, what is the sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed? seems pretty simple. Peter says, you have lied to the Spirit. You have lied to God, not to man. But can it simply just be that? Is it just a lie? Yeah, I spoke about it earlier. I think there's two primary things that underlie what they did. And that was their greed and their pride. Their greed, which when they saw their money, they couldn't part with it. They, they were under no obligation to give that money. The church doesn't ask for people. It doesn't demand people to give their money. That's not what the church does. But God says, cheerfully give. And they couldn't cheerfully do it because they loved their money. And so, honestly, it would have been better for them to just keep the money. They should have just kept the money. But then they wanted this other thing. They wanted pride. They wanted their pride and their ego to be satisfied. Because when you give all your money away, when you look like a good person, people love you and you're admired. They loved to hear the praise of other men, of people in the church. They just loved to be their ego filled, to be exalted above other people as though they were better than them. But yet both of those led them to lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to the church, trying to, to deceive them because they wanted to fulfill not good desires, but sinful desires. Because the desire to hold money, which they said themselves was not theirs because they were giving it to the church, and to just seek the praise of people in the church, that's not good and worthy desires. And granted, if they had given their money, God would have honored that and they would have been exalted. But instead, they wanted to keep their money. And so, what was their sin? They wanted to deceive both God and the church because they love money and the admiration of men more than they love God. So that's the sin that we have. And now I think like the most important question which everyone asks when we come to this passage, why was their punishment so harsh? It's not like, you know, at least if it was like Peter who stabbed him, you can be like he overreacted a bit. You know, maybe he got a bit, oh, how dare you? But that's not what we're left with. We're left with the Holy Spirit doing that. And so... What do we do with that? They were greedy and prideful and they lied. But they weren't that bad. They were still giving money to the church. Surely we've all done worse things than they have. Uh, Excuse me. Ned. 
Um, I don't like dealing with the harshness of the punishment to Ananias and Sapphira because I myself commit, I lie every day. I commit worse sins than them. I've been greedy. I've wanted to be praised by people. Do you know how hard it is to be wanting to be a pastor and you stand up the front? It's the stage. It's where the spotlight is. But yet I'm told the spotlight should not be on me. Everything that I say should point to Christ. And it's really hard sometimes because you want people to think that you're a great speaker or a great whatever. But I'm not smited every time, even though I have the desires in my heart. Sometimes I try to fulfill them. And it's just a really scary thing to face because why aren't people dropping dead in the church every day? And I think unless when we look at Ananias and Sapphira, we're willing to admit that God overreacted, which I can tell you isn't an option. We have to deal with the fact that when we look at our sin, we actually don't see it right. We actually don't see how much we sin against God because otherwise we wouldn't overreact to that. We would think it's just punishment, but we don't think that. We think it's unjust what God did to them. So how do we deal with that? I want to... It's interesting as we look at similar stories. There's like there's some really interesting stories throughout the Old Testament, especially of kind of similar situations. You've got people like Nadab and Abihu. It's in Leviticus 10. They're the sons of Aaron, the first high priest. They're in the temple, and they offer something called strange fire on the altar of the Lord. We don't really know what it is. It could have been diesel. It could have been toilet paper. They threw on the fire, but for whatever it was, God didn't like it. And, they, and he consumed them with fire. Seems like an overreaction. What about another really interesting one, which I don't know if I should mention in church. There's Onan in Genesis 38. He is killed by God because he doesn't want to impregnate his brother's wife, who died, not his brother. The brother died. And so his father told him, go and give your, give your brother a firstborn by sleeping with his wife. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. God killed him. Overreaction on God's part? I'm starting to think so. Well, what about when we come to... This is just Uzzah. This is in 2 Samuel 6. He, they're transporting the Ark of the Lord back to Jerusalem. This was the prized possession of all Israel. And as they're carrying it back from a place to Jerusalem, it's been carried on some, like some bulls. And, it, and apparently they, they hit like a speed bump or something. And anyway, they stumble, and the ark of the Lord goes to land into the dirt. And Uzzah, like any good person you would think, goes down to reach it and grab it so it doesn't fall in the dirt. Do you want the prized possession of God falling into the dirt? No. But as he goes to touch it, drops dead. What is with this God? Does he just overreact? Does he need to take a chill pill and just chill out a bit? Because it seems like he does. He's always overreacting. But you see, that's always from my viewpoint. Because I, I relate to, like, Asa and Nadab and Abihu. Like, what, were they really doing something that bad? But yet, am I willing to say that God was the one that was wrong in doing what he did? I'm not willing to say that. So, we see that our response, how we respond to it and how we see it, we have to wrestle with the fact is, is God the problem or am I the problem? And... I'm pretty confident that we're the problem. So we don't, 
The problem is we don't like a God who punishes sin with death. We think it's an unjust punishment. Like, okay, you know, maybe capital punishment. Say maybe someone murders someone. Or, you know, there's the really bad people out there. But we don't like the idea that he commits, that he judges sins that we do every day. Do we really deserve to die for lying to our spouse? Or, for, or lying to our kids? What if it's a good white lie? Complaining and grumbling. It's 39 degrees out there some days. I think complaining is pretty valid. But do we really deserve to die for that? That seems so harsh. We, but you see, the thing is, we always want a God who doesn't really care about our sins because we'd rather just be able to go through life doing what we want to do and not having to worry so much about a God who's watching over us, ready to smite us. And the thing is, especially at least all those stories I told you, they're in the Old Testament. So that's the Old Testament God. But we come to the New Testament, and he's the gentle love, oh, the Jesus, the sheep, the Lamb of God, who would never, oh, he doesn't break the bruised reed. He is so gentle and so loving. He gives us rest. And yet we come to Acts 5, and you realize that the God of the Old Testament, the one of all those stories, is the same one in the New Testament. And you have to wrestle with how do we deal with a gentle, loving God who drops people dead for lying? And it's a really hard thing to grapple with. I'm not going to say that it's easy, but it's something we do have to grapple with. And the thing we have to recognize is as sinners, we, we want to squash down us and we want to minimize it. You know, we want to take whatever the sum amount of it is and just, you know, chop it down, chop it off. Oh, I didn't really do that part. No, my kids, oh, you know, they did that. Oh, look, come on. I'm getting a bit old. You know, I'm in pain. Come on, like, chop that off. But God makes it abundantly clear. Our sin is wicked and deserving of death. And he says it throughout the whole Bible. It's a point that is plain and clear. That each and every sin that we commit every day deserves death. And I hope that the aircon is helping you to cool down. You might be sweating a bit. And it's hard. It's really hard for us because the only viewpoint we can understand is, is as sinners. Well, that's all we are. That's all we know. That's what we've only ever grown up around sinners. Our parents were sinners. We're sinners. Our kids are sinners. That's all we know. So that's why we struggle with it because we can't understand the idea of a holy God. We can't understand His viewpoint. The idea that He can't even be in the presence of sin. He says that I can't be in the presence of sin, not because He's scared of it, not because He's too precious. Because if sin comes into his presence, it gets destroyed. It gets annihilated. And so we struggle to understand that part of him. And I just want to read this quote here. It's by a theologian. When we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, we begin to understand just how sinful and hopeless we are. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually powerless without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been given to us by grace. As Christians, I want us to believe this. We don't just deserve death as sinners. We deserve death for each and every sin we commit. Every time we disobey God, we tell him, I don't trust you, I don't love you, and you don't tell me what to do. 
I tell you what I'm doing. Every little sin is God is telling God he isn't God, we are. It's our way or the highway. I think I want to use this illustration to help picture it because, again, we're always going to struggle with just how our sin is, how big it is. Imagine you're out on the farm. You see the old bush basher. It's covered in rust, covered in dents. You take out your key and you scratch it right down the side. Who's going to come out and yell at you? Absolutely no one because it's already got a million scratches on it and no one cares. That's why it's out on the farm with no registration. But what if I went out and did it to one of Derek's falcons? Now, he might be really mad. No one else is probably going to care. But I might have to stay behind for a few hours and go polish that scratch out or something like that. Now, what if I go to the Toyota dealership across the road and find the nicest Land Cruiser they've got sitting there and I take out my Kino? I'm getting yelled at and probably arrested. And I will be paying a good chunk of money to them if not convicted of a crime. And you see, it's interesting, because I'm doing the same action each and every time. The only thing that changes is the value of that car. And it's the same thing. When you commit a sin against me, it does hurt, maybe, but it's not as big a deal because I'm of equal value to you, you know? But what about if we sin against the infinite God of the universe? It says in the Bible, he's of infinite value. And so... How do we compute that? And this illustration isn't going to fully make it, oh, yeah, I get it now, because you are never going to fully comprehend the magnitude of your sin. Because every part of us wants to make it a molehill, tiny little anthill, but it's a mountain the size of which we cannot even comprehend. And so that's what we're left with. That's my sermon for today. And no, I'm kidding. I don't think there. So now we see that. We see the size of our sin we see that we're just left with it. So then we ask the question, why isn't everyone dropping dead? If God did it once, why doesn't he keep doing it? And I think it's good that we get Ananias and Sapphira in two separate instances. They don't die at the same time. And I think God's showing us something. Because some people say that it's exactly the same with Ananias and Sapphira, that she just comes in and drops dead. But there actually are some key differences which I think we should see. I'm just going to reread it out because I think it just helps. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. Immediately she fell down and died. Breathed her last. There's a really interesting little... just tidbit just in verse 7 which I think is just interesting because I don't know why you have to specify that it was specifically three hours you could have just said she came in after a bit but I think it's interesting because she didn't drop dead the instant that Ananias committed the sin the sin which she was also in with but God gave her three hours three hours to turn back to think to ponder should I not have committed the actions which I did and so And she's even given a chance. You see, when Ananias brought the money, Peter spoke, said, I've seen your sin. He dropped dead. But he asked Sapphira, did you give the land for so and so much? She has the chance here to tell the truth. But yet, just like her husband, 
she is assured that she can fool them, that she can deceive them. Probably wouldn't have thought that if she had known that her husband was go- had already dropped dead three hours before. But she didn't. And so thinking in her same sinful mind that she could get away with it, she drops dead as well. Now, it's still extraordinary because she dropped dead as well, but it more closely resembles our experience, our situation. Because God has given us time to repent too. Now, in 1 Peter 3 and I says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Not to come into his church and still keep lying. God was patient with Sapphira, and he's patient with us. Sapphira was given three hours. Some of us, I'd imagine everyone in this room has got a good 50 years. I think, okay, I might be lying. No, you're also beyond. Anyway, um, but it could also be three hours. You never know when it could happen. Jesus could come back. People die when they're in their 20s. I could die three hours from now. I have no idea. Um, And that's the reality of life. We don't know the next step we take, the next breath we'll take. But God has given us this window now to turn back from our ways. And he gave that chance to Ananias, to Sapphira. And he's given that chance to us as well. So, seems right. Seems good. So we repent, right? We turn from our ways and we turn to God. Seems great. But then... As we see with Sapphira, she was given the chance, but she did something. She agreed with her husband to test the spirit of the Lord. And testing the spirit of the Lord, there's another passage which sounds very similar to that, of the story which we probably know. Jesus in the wilderness. He's out, spends 40 days and 40 nights fasting in the wilderness. And what happens? This, oh, Satan comes. And one of the instances of Satan, Satan takes him to Jerusalem right to the top of the temple. And he says, throw yourself down. You're the son of God. Surely he will catch you. He's sent his angels and you will not even hurt your feet. You can fall down. He could have jumped off and he would have been completely fine. But he said and quoted a piece of scripture to Satan. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy 6.16. It was a passage about the Israelites. Moses was telling them, do not put your, the Lord your God to the test. This was before they went into this, the promised land. And he was telling them, do not do it like you did this one time before when they were, after they had come through the Red Sea, they were carried out of Egypt. They went through the Red Sea. But then after seeing this literal sea split in half, they go, Oh, can we just go back to Egypt? Um, has he brought us out here in this desert to starve and to die? As though he wouldn't provide for them, even though they literally just walked through an ocean with walls that would have been tens of, tens of metres high. And he literally also just came in a ball of fire to destroy the entire Pharaoh, all of Pharaoh's army. But yet they're like, but God can't provide for us. And what does God do? He provides for them. But he says, do not do this again. Do not put me to the test again. And what do Ananias and Sapphira do? They put God to the test. How? Because they don't believe God will provide. Greed only comes from one thing. And it's believing that God can't satisfy our desires. He can't actually give us what we need. 
And the truth is, of course he can. He's the one that made the money that sits in our hands. Of course he can give it to us. He literally rained bread from heaven and made water come out of a rock, come out of a rock for the Israelites. Pretty sure he can feed us. And then the other thing they also did is they pushed their scripture because when Moses says, do not put the Lord your God to the test, it comes with a curse. It says, otherwise, do not test me, otherwise the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will destroy you from the face of the earth. They didn't believe God would do, would, you know, would actually fulfill his promise. It's not necessarily a nice promise that God would curse people, but they didn't think they didn't think. They thought they could deceive him. They thought that even if he found out, he wouldn't actually punish them. Punish them. The terrifying thing, we believe exactly the same thing. We don't believe God is going to punish our sins. I know that we do believe in heaven and hell, but no one likes the idea of hell. I'm also not telling you you need to like the idea of hell. But we do try to minimise it at all costs. Whenever, Because the reality is we come to God with our sins and... Oftentimes, I know with me at least, it's my quote-unquote biggest sins. But I have these smaller sins which just lie in me, which God reveals to me every day. The way that I don't love Michelle as I should. The way which I'm maybe disrespectful to my friends. And, or maybe just complaining and gossiping. These small things which are so part of our culture, which we just don't, we, we write them off as little sins. I don't even think of them as sins let alone that they deserve death. And why do we constantly believe it? Because even though the Bible makes it loud and clear, we are just refusing it at all costs. There is no part of you that wants to accept it, but it's just a terrifying thing to accept, that death is constantly sitting over our heads. So we're sitting there with our head on the chopping block. We've received the guilty verdict, we've got the sentence of death, and the executioner... It's God. He's sitting there with the axe, ready to swing. The only thing stopping him is that he loves us. That is the only thing. And what are we doing? Pleading and begging for mercy? No. Most of the time, we're laughing at the very executioner who's holding the axe, thinking that he won't do it, relying on his grace, being like, ah, I'm covered. You're not going to swing that thing. And the amazing thing, while we laughed at God he sent his son to be beaten and murdered in our place while we were still laughing at him thinking that he wasn't going to punish our sins every time that we make light of our sins we spit in Jesus' face it's as though we lined that road to Calvary that lied, that road to the hill which he died on and we lined with all the sinners that lined that road and as he carried that cross we spit in his face So what hope do we have? The fact that even though we spit in his face, he still kept carrying that cross. I don't know how we deal with the fact that a holy God sent his son to die for us, that we looked at him as he carried our cross up that hill and we watched an amusement. We giggled and laughed at him. And never once did he hate us. Never once did he say a bad word against us. But he just said, I love you. And I'm doing this for you.
God is holy and he can't live with sin. And rather than give us death, he sent his son to take that death on our behalf. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they're an example of what happens when Jesus doesn't stand in the way of that axe. God was angry with them and he reacted as he should have and as he has every right to do. And if we continue to walk around without any concern for our sins, without thinking about even the little ones, and I'm not saying you've got to be constantly just grieving your sin, but don't make light of them. Because if we do, we will face the same fate as Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe not now, but soon. But the amazing thing, when we embrace the love of God that, that loved us when we were still sinners, when we turn to him and look at him upon that cross and say, Please forgive me. Know that that very day, your sins are covered. When God looks at you, he doesn't want to smite you. He looks on you with a smile. He calls you his child. He says, you're my own. And he will do everything he can. And everything. And when he can do everything he can, he can do everything. To love you and to help you and to support you through this life. And he will give you eternal life. Something which none of us deserve. But he did it out of nothing but love. And so all he asks in return is that you repent, that you don't make light of the sins and the little things. And even when we do make light of the little things, he covers that as well. He's a great God, and I honestly don't know what we do without him. But, um, yeah, that's the grace that covers us. And when we take communion soon, think that Every single day you've committed something which was deserving of death, but that blood and that body which we take in communion covers you. And you don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to feel the guilt of your sin. You don't have to feel the weight of it. You don't have to think that death is over your shoulder because it isn't. It's been dealt with. Jesus took it. So find hope in that. And I hope that even though this has been a bit of a fire and brimstone sermon, you have a bit of joy knowing that you can accept Christ and that fire and brimstone is nowhere near you. Thank you. Oh, I'll pray. Um, Father, we know that so much stands between you and us. There is a massive gap caused by our sin which we cannot bridge. But yet, out of only love for us when we hated you, you sent your son. He died in our place. And now you call us to repent. So, Father, bring us joy and show us your grace. Because how can we not rejoice that every punishment which we deserve has been taken away and now all we have is you to enjoy. So Father, help us to relish in that and be with us as we go into our week living in that light, not to make light of our sin, but to hold fast to you and to delight in you. In Jesus' name.